We're continuing our study in the Sermon on the Mount. Tonight our intention is to look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. As I read this, I want to not simply read verse 6 because it's such a beautiful, poetic portion of Scripture. I want to start with verse 3 and we'll stop on verse 6. Matthew chapter 5. Verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Each of the Beatitudes we've looked at so far has been a beautiful pearl in this ornament of grace in the life of the believer. Christ in this sermon has been busy describing the character of His people. And each of these qualities is a result of the work of grace in the believer's life. And then the continuation of each quality proves that grace is ongoing in the process of sanctification. Let me remind you of what we talked about before. We we came into the kingdom as poor and bankrupt sinners. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And we continue to recognize, even after we enter the kingdom, that we have no goodness on our own. We came into the kingdom mourning over our sin. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. But we continue to mourn over our sin, even as Christians. We came into the kingdom of God in meekness. And we continue being meek, knowing that any grace we've received of God, we didn't deserve. And the fourth beatitude here is no different. We come into the kingdom of God, hungering and thirsting after righteousness, but we continue with an increasing appetite for the righteousness of God, even after we're Christians. And so the idea is, it's not like, okay, I'm poor in spirit, I got saved, it's done. I'm mourning over my sin, I got saved, it's done. I'm meek, I got saved, it's done. That's not it. No, no, I'm continuing to be poor in spirit. I'm continuing to mourn over my sin. I'm continuing to be humble. And it's the same with hungering and thirsting after righteousness. In Matthew chapter 6, 33, Jesus said, But seek ye first... The kingdom of God and His what? His righteousness. His righteousness. And so the context of that command, if you'll remember, was a rebuke to those who made this world their priority. Not the righteousness of God their priority, but this world their priority. And it was then that Jesus said, you cannot serve God and mammon. You know, the priority of a believer is righteousness. Because the believer recognizes that if he or she gains the whole world and loses their own soul, they've gained nothing. So kingdom people desire above all to be pleasing to God by possessing righteousness. So let's think about that tonight. The first thing I want you to understand is hunger and thirst are appetites that a person must have to live. If you're going to live, you have to have an appetite. Our bodies need food and drink. Without food and drink, your body's going to die. So God has therefore given us two things to ensure that we will eat and that we will drink. 
The first thing He's given us is the desire for food and drink. Your body craves to eat and to drink. If you go very long without eating or drinking, your body's going to begin to tell you, you need to eat. You need to drink. You're going to experience weakness. You're going to hear your stomach growling. You're going to have discomfort. And then once you consume something, that weakness and that discomfort is gone. And if a person doesn't desire food or drink for a reasonable amount of time, the body is sick. So the first thing God has given us to ensure that we would eat and drink is He has given us the desire for food and drink. The second thing that He has given us is this. He has given us a delight in food or drink. He's given us a delight in food or drink. We like it. Amen? We like to eat. We like a wonderful glass of sweet tea. God has created humans with this wonderful set of taste buds. And because God has given us this wonderful set of taste buds, we enjoy what we consume. Did you know, by the way, that that's a part of God's grace in your life? The writer of Ecclesiastes talks about that in Ecclesiastes 2.24, that it is the Lord's will that we find joy in what we consume. I think that's a wonderful thing. So when you can taste that cheeseburger, you just thank God you can taste it. Amen? When you can taste that piece of key lime pie... You just thank God because God gave you that. God gave you this desire for food, but it's not just, oh boy, i got to eat. It's not like filling up your gas tank. It's, I get to eat. I get to drink. And what a joyful thing it is. If I didn't get full, I'd just do it all the time. So to ensure that we live, God has given us this desire and delight in food and drink. But it's also necessary for us to have an appetite for righteousness. If you want to live spiritually, just as if you want to live physically, if you want to live spiritually, you have to have an appetite. You have to have a desire, a hunger for righteousness. So God gives the kingdom person not only the desire for righteousness, but also gives him or her the delight in righteousness that they need to ensure that they live spiritually. So are you with me? Just as God has given you a desire and a delight so that you will live physically, God has given you a desire and a delight that you will live spiritually. He gives the believer the desire for righteousness. The Bible teaches in Ephesians 2, 1, that before we're saved, we're dead in our sin. And in that state, our appetite is not focused on righteousness at all. We focus on pleasing the flesh. But when we enter the kingdom through the new birth, God changes our appetite. When you get saved, God changes your appetite, and now you have an appetite for righteousness. But not only does He give you a desire when you get saved for righteousness, He also gives you a delight in righteousness. As kingdom people, not only do we partake of righteousness, but we enjoy it. In fact, guess what's displeasing to us now? After we're saved, what's displeasing to us is unrighteousness. And we continue to pursue righteousness for the same reason that we keep eating and we keep drinking. We enjoy the taste of righteousness. 
That's why we live that way. There's this false idea out there, I think people say, well, I don't understand how in the world that you could be happy being a Christian because if you're a Christian, you can't go out there and do all these sinful things that bring you so much pleasure. But what they don't understand is is they're dismissing the new birth. They're dismissing the miracle of redemption that when God saves you, He changes you. You're not just, oh boy, it's like saying, oh boy, i got to eat this key lime pie. No, no, no. You love this righteousness now. You delight in this righteousness, not just desire it. And you know, no matter how often or how much, no matter how much you eat or drink, you always get hungry again, don't you? And in the same way, no matter how much righteousness you experience, you continue to want more. So you don't just come to the altar saying, yeah, I'm righteous, I want to be righteous, make me righteous. No, when you get saved, it's like hunger. You just keep desiring righteousness. Righteousness is as joyful to the believer as eating is. Now, kingdom people are starving for righteousness. The words here that Jesus uses are meant to describe a person, not somebody who merely missed breakfast. That's not what the word in the Greek describes. It actually describes a person who's famished. The hunger and thirst spoken of here is an intense need and desire for relief of starvation, for relief of dehydration. Very, very few people that we know have probably ever really experienced what this word actually communicates in the original. You know, our kids, they, they, they say things like, I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. I'm starving to death. And then we give them a sandwich and a glass of juice and the sandwich is left half eaten and the juice glass half full. And to say the least, we use those terms very loosely, don't we? But those who lived in Jesus' day really knew what it was like to be literally starving. To be literally thirsting. It was a desert region. It was no no stranger to drought. It was no stranger to famine. They knew what it was like. And so that word communicated a person who was desperately hungry, desperately thirsty. So we can get a couple of truths from this analogy. First of all, starving people are single-minded. Starving people are single-minded. Suppose you encountered a person in the desert and this person was dying of thirst. And they were literally dying of thirst. It wasn't going to be long, and they were going to be food for the buzzards. The buzzards were already circling. They were dying of thirst. And let's say you encounter them, and you have two things. You have a briefcase full of a million dollars, and you have a couple of gallons of water there with you. And if that person could only choose one, which would they choose? Well, they would choose the water. Because the water is the only thing that would quench their thirst. The only thing attractive to a starving or thirsty person is food or drink. And so it is when God strikes a soul with the reality of their spiritual starvation. 
when they realize they are bankrupt before God, when they realize they need to be made righteous before God, when they realize that they are literally famished before God and and dead spiritually, no matter what the world offers them, they're going to come to Christ for righteousness because He's the only one who can quench their thirst. At that moment, He's the only one who's attractive attractive to them because they are starving for righteousness and they can't get it anywhere else. The only place they can get it is Jesus. So starving people are single-minded. Secondly, starving people will seek for food. Starving people don't just sit down and die. They venture out. They look for food. It's been said that when the prodigal son was hungry, he took a job feeding swine. When he was starving, he went back home. There's a difference, amen? There's a difference. Hunger may cause you to seek for food in places that you're ashamed of, but starvation will urge you to return to the Father, the only one who can satisfy you. And so God makes us aware of our great need. Why does God make us aware of our great need? So we will seek Him. So we will be single-minded. So we will seek Him and say, Lord... I need righteousness that I cannot get on my own. Now, kingdom people continue to hunger and thirst after righteousness. The the, the initial thing that you want when you come to Jesus is to be made righteous. That's why you come. You come because you're not righteous. You come because you recognize I'm a sinner. I've sinned. There's nothing I can do to earn God's favor. The conviction of the Holy Spirit comes, shows you that you're in danger of judgment. Reason and Scripture both teach you that you can't enter heaven without righteousness. 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16, without holiness, we're not going to see the Lord. And so you you see that, you, you have a hunger for righteousness. And the Bible describes righteousness in three different ways. And I want to share that with you tonight because these are really important to understand in in, in your Christian walk. First of all, the Bible describes what's called positional righteousness. Positional righteousness. I think I have a slide for this. There you go. Positional righteousness. And this comes when the new birth comes. What is positional righteousness? Well, it's an imputation of the righteousness of Jesus Christ into the life of the believer. In other words, you're standing before God. You you are counted as righteous because the very righteousness of Jesus Christ is given to your account. Romans 5.19 By one man's disobedience were many made sinners, but by the obedience of one were many made righteous. The Bible says that we are made the righteousness of God because of Jesus Christ. And so the very righteousness of Jesus imputed to you. One of the easiest ways for us to understand in our culture that process is if you had a bank account. And that bank account was empty, let's say, and... Someone came and and they made a direct deposit into that account and you looked at that account and all of a sudden now you've got a million dollars in there where you did have nothing. It had nothing to do with you. You didn't make that deposit. 
But someone, out of kindness, put that money in your bank account. That's what the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ is. Your life is that empty bank account. Your life is overdrawn. Your life, man, you owe more than you could ever pay. But God, out of His goodness, has made a direct deposit into into you. And that direct deposit is the very righteousness of Jesus. All of His goodness, all of His obedience for that 33 years when He walked on this earth and obeyed the law, that's been given to you. And because of that, now you are positionally righteous. So when God looks at you now, He doesn't see the sinful way that you've lived your life. He doesn't see the ungodliness and all the things you've been involved in. But when He looks at you, He doesn't see an overdrawn, indebted sinner, but He sees the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's good news. That's what we call positional righteousness. And it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Secondly, there is perfect righteousness. Perfect righteousness. This comes when you meet the Lord. In other words, one of these days, if you're saved, one of these days you will be made perfectly righteous. You will be completely transformed because the righteousness you now possess positionally is held within a sinful body, isn't it? That has desires, temptations, thoughts, ungodly things that kind of drive you crazy sometimes. But 1 John 3, 2 says that when we meet Jesus, when we see Jesus, we will be as He is. We will be completely transformed. And that's what's called perfect righteousness in Scripture, well, that word exactly isn't used, but that's the idea there. The word that would be used would be more like glorification. So there is positional righteousness. You are made righteous before God because of Jesus. There is perfect righteousness. One of these days you're going to be completely transformed, not even be able to be tempted to sin. And then there's a third aspect of it as well, and we call that practical righteousness. Practical righteousness. Now what is practical righteousness? Practical righteousness is the righteous life that the believer lives as a result of salvation. Can we go to that slide? Is it working? Thank you. This is the righteous life that a believer lives as a result of salvation. 1 John 3, 3. He that hath this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. And so the idea there is If you have been made positionally righteous, and if one day you will be made perfectly righteous, don't think that there won't be some practical righteousness in there as well. What I mean is you will live out the righteousness that's on the inside of you. You will live a righteous life in this world. Why? Because you've been made positionally righteous and because you long to be made perfectly righteous. It only follows that as you live on this earth... Between those two great realities, you will live a life of righteousness. The true believer, those who are truly saved, long for all three aspects. You long to stand in righteousness before God. You long to be transformed one of these days and be with God. But you also long to walk pleasingly before God on this earth. 
And listen to me. If you don't desire to walk in righteousness on this earth, it says a whole lot about you. If you don't desire to walk in righteousness on this earth, I have to wonder if you've been made positionally righteous and if you ever will be made perfectly righteous. Because the proof that you have been made positionally righteous and will one day be perfectly righteous is the fact that you are practically righteous right now. That's the proof. The righteousness in us and our desire to be completely free from sin is going to compel us to pursue a righteous life on this earth. You know, righteousness doesn't have to be taught any more than hunger has to be taught. Babies come into this world with an appetite and an attitude. Amen? That's the two things they bring. An appetite and an attitude. They don't have to be taught to eat. And in the same way, believers are born again into the kingdom of God with a hunger for righteousness. What I mean by that is they will naturally pursue righteousness because they are born again. And a person who claims to know God but has no desire to live a righteous life should be very concerned. It was the great old-time preacher Thomas Watson who said, He has most need of righteousness that least wants it. He has most need of righteousness that least wants it. You see, the true believer continues to follow holiness and battle against sin. Why does he do that? Because he's hungry and thirsty for it. And if we're not pursuing righteousness on this earth, it's for one simple reason. We're not hungry for it. You know, I hear people sometimes, they'll say, well, you know, Brother Kyle, I know that guy lives like the devil, and I know he lives such a sinful life, but but he just hadn't grown in his faith. That's what they'll say. He just hadn't grown in his faith. Listen, spiritual maturity has, has nothing to do with figuring out what sin is. You hear me? Amen. You know what sin is. You know it's wrong. And if you don't know what sin is, you can't know the Lord. Because the reason you come to know the Lord is you see your sin. You see your sin and you say, oh boy, I'm in trouble. Oh boy, I'm in judgment. And you come to the Lord because you say, God, forgive me. And so this idea that that people don't live holy lives because they're not mature in the Lord, that's that's not true. You know what sin is. I'll say this, you don't even have to be saved to know what sin is. Amen? Amen. The Bible says that, that we know by nature things about God. We know by the very nature of the law of God written on the heart of humanity. Lost people may not have the Holy Spirit, but they got a conscience. Amen? Amen. They got a conscience. And that conscience tells them what sin is. And so this idea that that Christians can live unholy lives simply because they're not mature in the faith, it's not a biblical, it's not a biblical truth at all. And the last thing I want you to see here is kingdom people will be filled. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. They shall be filled. Isn't it interesting to note what kingdom people come looking for from God? They don't come looking for money. They don't come looking for purpose in life. 
They don't come looking for happiness. What are they looking for? Righteousness. Righteousness. And Jesus says they'll be filled. They'll be filled. Christ is going to satisfy their hunger with what? With His own righteousness. With His own righteousness. Listen to me, folks. There is a group of people who want more than anything to stand righteously before the Lord. That's what they want. More than anything in this world, they want to stand before God and know that they're righteous. And to those people who want more than anything in this world to stand before God as righteous, to those people, Jesus has this promise, you shall be filled. Amen. You shall be filled. Amen. What will they be filled with? Oh. Righteousness. Righteousness. Why? Because that's what they're hungering for. Oh Lord, we want righteousness. God says, I'll give it to you. I'll give it to you. Christ pours Himself into these people. God is the great satisfier of the longing soul. Amen. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That's right. And so the believer can stand in assurance that faith brings. We can know that because of the, rec- the, 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 the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and our repentance that we stand justified before God. Amen. And on this earth... We're going to continue. Now listen, I don't mean to suggest that we're perfect, because we're certainly not perfect. But on this earth, we will continue to experience a level of hunger and thirst for righteousness. And if we're righteous at this present time, we're still aware that there's a righteousness we haven't attained. Amen? Amen. Everyone in here who's saved, you know you're saved, but you say, boy, I still long to be made righteous. Amen? Amen. I still long. I long. For all of those who know that reality, I want, to listen, I want you to listen to this wonderful promise from Revelation chapter 7, verses 16 and 17. It says, They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, for the Lamb which is in the midst of them shall feed them and shall lead them unto living, unto living fountains of waters. Isn't that good? Amen. That's good. That one of these days we're going to stand with Christ in heaven. And that He is going to be our eternal satisfier. You know, if if we seek righteousness, you can be sure that God will fulfill that desire. If that's what you want, you're going to get it. Amen? Amen? You might want a new car, you might not get that. You might want a good looking wife, you might not get that. But if you want righteousness, you'll get it. You'll get it. Boy, I tell you what, it's good to have David in here tonight. Amen? David's on the front row up here. He come to our Bible studies every Thursday. I think we haven't been able to have him. He missed me so much he came tonight. Amen? I appreciate you, David. It's a blessing to have somebody alive in here. Amen? Amen in me a little bit. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness. For they'll be filled... Have you been filled, friend? Have you been filled? That's good to me. Amen?